Hey, thanks for listening to the Grace Auburn Church Podcast. This week, Executive Pastor Lee Cadden continues our summer series through the Psalms, looking at Psalm 42. My name is Lee, and I serve as one of our pastors here, and we uh, have been just incredibly blown away by God's faithfulness to bring the right people at the right time throughout the entire life of this church to continue carrying ministry, and that is certainly true of our staff team, and so it was a privilege to be able to leave and to not think about what I was leaving, not you people, missing you guys tremendously, but to be able to rest well, knowing that uh, there's a lot that lay before us as a church that's just three years old. We have so much uh, that the Lord is putting on our hearts to do. And so if you're just joining us, or if you have been over these last few weeks, let me once again say welcome. We could not be more excited about where we are and where we are going. And so welcome, uh, and we're excited to have you here with us. We're in a sermon series called You Are so I will, uh, the response of believers to who God is based on his character, his nature, the things that he is and does, and how we respond in faith to those things. They are confessions of who he is or admissions of who he is. They don't change whether we see them or not, but there is something dramatic that happens within the soul of the believer when we see God for who he is, and then we respond in faith to him, how we respond to who he is, not only what he does. These psalms that we'll be covering and have been covering over the last few weeks and will be covering for the rest of the summer, they serve as confessions. They serve as reminders of if he is all these things, then certainly I am not. If he is all of these things, then certainly my circumstances submit to who he is. And wonderfully, God has given us the Psalms in so many ways uh, as a prayer language, so to speak. Oftentimes, if you're like me, you find yourself in a prayer that you've prayed a hundred times. And you find yourself repeating and repeating and repeating, and there's nothing wrong with continuing to remind yourself and confessing those same words over and over again, but I find incredible life in the Psalms because they are, in fact, God's words for us to praise Him appropriately. And so oftentimes, we find ourselves in reading the Psalms going, man, that is exactly how I feel, but there's no way I'd say that. There's absolutely no way I would say that to my wife, let alone the ruler of the universe. And yet over and over again, whether it be David or as, as, as is the case in our psalm this morning, someone different, we find the emotions of believers being brought to the king's feet. And because of who he is, he then responds in a particular way, even as we'll look at today, even when he doesn't feel like it. I believe that there is an incredible amount of good in the Psalms when we are full of life and joy. But for me, oftentimes, I find myself in dark or broken places needing the Psalms more so than ever. And the psalmist in Psalm 42, which is where we'll start this morning, the psalmist is in one of those places because of his circumstances, because of brokenness, because of pain, because of Israel's enemies, and because of a God who is not necessarily doing what he thinks ought to be doing or being done in that very moment. 
The main idea of this psalm is oftentimes put at the very top of that section. 42 starts book two of the psalms as they're broken into their different categories and into their different books. And this is not a psalm of David. It is a psalm of the sons of Korah, uh, likely a a family of of temple singers and songwriters. Um, And Psalm 42 is is believed to have been written with Psalm 43. So if you read them without the other one, there's a little bit missing, though you get parts of the resolution in 42, it really comes to its fulfillment in 43. But I want to set it up this way. Just as the sons of Korah and Israel in their day lived in a day that was desperate for the Lord to do what only the Lord could do, so too do we find ourselves in a day full of desperation. We find ourselves, if you just look at the news for five minutes, looking for, or you see a people that are desperate for justice. You see people who are desperate for significance. You see a culture around us that is desperate for meaning. And so oftentimes it finds or tries to find the solution or the answer in social initiatives or in approval or significance being found in the approval of others and meaning tied to accomplishment or accolades. How long is your resume, so to speak? But hundreds of years ago, St. Augustine rightly addressed the human condition when he started talking at length and writing at length about what does it mean to hunger and thirst for the Lord. He's put it this way, and you've probably heard some version of this. This is not a new adage. It's centuries old at this point that God has created each one of us in his goodness, kindness, and sovereignty with a God-shaped vacuum that exists in all of us. And that vacuum rejects all substitutes. We as a people are constantly trying to put other things in that place and space. But as a people, we were created by God in his goodness to need God on a daily and ongoing basis. But we find ourselves in a world that is constantly over-promising and under-delivering to fill that in ways that only the Father was meant to. We find ourselves in a world that is full of brokenness, sometimes because of our own sin and brokenness and pain, and oftentimes just because we live in a world that is full of sin and brokenness, pain, and at no fault of our own. And I believe that the psalmist here in 42 is referencing that kind of brokenness and pain. Just He lives in a place where there are enemies. There are enemies of his, there are enemies of the people of God, there are enemies of God himself. And we find ourselves in a day with different enemies, but enemies just the same. And the state of the world today is this. There is a deep, deep sense of desperation full of empty wells, full of places that you can go and look and find just one more, whatever it is that you would have. But the Father, I believe, is using this thirsting. He is using this longing. And he has been using this for centuries and millennia to draw people to himself. He is using this thirsting, this longing, this desperation, so to speak, to draw people to himself because he knows exactly how you were created because he made you that way, to hunger and thirst for him. So the psalmist starts in 42 in verse 1. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all the day long, 
Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with loud shouts of joy and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of the Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mazar, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves, they have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love and at night, his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. As sons and daughters of God, we still inhabit this earth. And there will be moments could be seasons, could be days, could be weeks, could be months, could be years of darkness. There will be moments where we are tempted to believe that God has forsaken us, that God has forgotten about us, that God, even worse perhaps, doesn't even care about us. There will be days of questions, days of fears, days of anxiety and worries. And if you are young and have not had these days yet, don't worry, you will. And we have songs like this one and the one after it in just a few minutes. We have songs like this one that are written for those days, for the moments where we find ourselves walking about in darkness and we may not verbalize it, but there's something in us that says, God, have you forgotten me? Have you rejected me? So if it's not you today, or if it is you today, And my invitation is for you to come with me into what feels like the deep end. And if you are not in that place today, I promise one day you will be, and this psalm will be for you in that day. The author, as I said, is likely a family or an individual among a family of temple singers and songwriters. And Psalm 42 and 43 were likely written together because of the refrains that repeat and the lack of breakup in the way that they were written in the original language. And so I wanna end with Psalm 43 in just a little bit, but I wanna talk about just kind of the way they work together and the way they outline themselves. In the first five verses you see in 42, this clear, clear confession that the psalmist knows full well in his brain that it is only in hungering and thirsting for the Lord that he finds fulfillment. Even in the midst of the lies, even in the midst of the taunting, even in the midst of the brokenness that he finds himself in, he remembers that God is the one to worship and praise no matter his situation. And he remembers the days when they were able to go and worship freely with the Lord, likely now to have been removed from the temple because of attacks from outsiders of Israel. And then in verses six through 10, he lays out that complaint 
to the Lord. He talks to, talks to him at length about the darkness that he finds himself in and why he believes he's in that place. And then at the end of 42, he reminds himself and calls for hope, but then he shifts into 43 with a cry for vindication, a cry for justice, a cry for God to do what only he could do that would result once again in the fully restored corporate worship of the people of Israel. And so he says in 43 verse one, vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people from the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with a lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. You don't have to read very far. In fact, very, the very beginning of these verses, but if you read them together in 42 and 43, you get this deep sense of desperation, this deep sense of hungering and thirsting as a deer who is thirsty in the desert pants for water. So too, his soul is panting for the presence of God. His deepest longing is to be with and worship him. The literal translations of seeing God in these verses in one and two are literally seeing the face of God. He wants to be in the presence of God. He wants to stand before him and worship him plainly, truly, accurately as he has done so many years in his life. Jesus would make it plain to his followers later that those who come and drink from the water that he offers, not the water from the wells of this earth, but the water that he gives will never thirst again. They will never thirst again if they will come to him and receive the gift of eternal life. He reiterates the idea when he preaches that blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. If there's one thing the world needs to know, it is that satisfaction is only found in the righteousness that comes from the Son of God, from the Father himself. So there it is, to be full, content, satisfied, not by anything you can buy or earn or achieve on your own, but on righteousness that has been bought, paid for, and given to you. And the psalmist knows this full well, and yet he finds himself not experiencing that. Like that's not his day in, day out in that moment. And he confesses that that is his deep, deep desire is to be with and in the presence of God. My question is, in your dark hour or in your dark day, where does your desperation lead you? Where does it Take you? Does it take you to a deeper and a more full hungering and thirsting for righteousness that comes from the presence of God, where there is joy, where there is fullness? Or does it come from something or someone else? That is the challenge that I believe that the psalmist is raising here at the very beginning. He is desperate for the presence of God. And I have to ask the question, am I desperate for the presence of God or am I desperate for being able to figure this out? on my own in this broken place. 
In verses three and four, the psalmist remembers the days of worshiping with the people of God and he weeps over them. You see, for them in that day, they had to worship in the temple if they were going to worship appropriately. We live in a day because of the Holy Spirit in us where the culture would say, hey, it doesn't really matter where you worship, which is true in a certain sense. You can worship the Father individually wherever because of the power of the Holy Spirit. But we have lost a certain sense of this and the deep, deep need and hunger that we have for all of this We spent the last several weeks traveling and the week before that I was preaching at a different church and I can abundantly tell you, and Matt will say this when he gets back later this month, that there is a deep missing place in our spirit when we're not with you. And I believe God has created us to long for worshiping him together because there's something very different that happens when we gather in this place. God has so instituted the beauty of worshiping him with other believers that when we don't have it, when we walk away from it, when we've maybe spent a season outside of it, that it ought to bring us to tears. It ought to bring us to a place where we long for the presence of other believers and worshiping God together. And so he asks himself in the midst of his brokenness and pain, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you cast down? If you know this is true, and if your soul longs for him, and if you know what the future is, if you know what his promises are, why are you cast down, O my soul? He doesn't berate his soul for being cast down. He just raises the issue and then he exhorts his soul in the next verse. Hope in God for you will see his face again and praise him, your salvation and your God. In that deep, dark, broken place, the psalmist bears full witness to the need of just exhorting yourself, reminding yourself, preaching the gospel to yourself, as C.S. Lewis would say it, on a daily basis matters because the promises of God don't change when your circumstances do. And so he finds himself having to remind himself, no, you will see the face of God again, regardless of your enemies, regardless of the things that they are doing and saying. In verses six through eight, he remembers all the times that God has been with them, that God has said yes and amen to them, the the, the times that they have enjoyed his presence where things have been going well. But here he finds himself not in the presence of God yet, God's yes, but in a deep, dark no, Over and over and over again, he asks the question, have you forsaken me? Have you forgotten me? I don't understand. I don't get why in praying for this thing, you haven't done this thing. There are times when God chooses to either be silent or answer differently than we would have him answer. But that's what it means to be sovereign ruler or not. That's what it means for the psalmist to write in 115 that he alone is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. Not just some of it every now and then, but he does all that he pleases all of the time because he is sovereign ruler. And the psalmist here has to remind himself to trust that in the darkness, it is the steadfast love, the chesed of God, the never going anywhere, no matter how many times you may blow it kind of love. It is that kind of love that will bring him through the darkness. So regardless of the silence, regardless of the ways, regardless of the taunts of the enemy, because there will be many, he remembers the goodness of God. And his steadfast love is the song that he says carries him through the night. 
It's in the remembering of God's past faithfulness that we stand in the midst of today's darkness. It is in remembering that he saved you from sin and death and hell and in eternity without him when you were a corpse and you smelt like it. It's in remembering those days that you find help in the very present darkness of today. If God has delivered you from sin and death, then surely he can deliver you from this present momentary trouble too. But the psalmist's enemies are not metaphorical, right? Like they're not theoretical, they're not fairy tale, they're not made up, they are real enemies. And their taunts, literally, he says, feel like broken bones. So it's not just like a passing comment that was rude and you dwelt on it for several days and now it hurts. It's like, no, these are lies about the character of God, lies about who he is, lies about who you are and they are in that moment. And they feel like, to the psalmist, they feel like broken bones, asking the question, where is your God? Surely he has forsaken you. And surely the lies of the enemy are no different today than they were then. If God really loves you, Surely he'd deliver you from this illness, this pain, this loss. If God were really kind and steadfast, as you say, wouldn't he deliver you from anxiety, depression, or from the reign of fear that it holds over you where you find yourself being your own worst enemy? If you loved God more or had enough faith, you'd be out of this mess there's an entire line of teaching that goes in that direction. But the lies have been consistent. God is not with you. Surely he has forsaken you. Where is your God? But the psalmist, starting in 42.11, reminds himself of his confident hope that he has in the Father. But what I love about the way the psalmist ends 42 is this. He says, why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. He's reminding himself that your responsibility, your greatest joy is to praise him no matter what happens. Like it doesn't say, oh, you're gonna get out of this darkness and everything's gonna be hunky-dory and we'll all sing kumbaya and everything will be great. It just says, no, you praise God and hope in him for you will again see him. That's it. Our deepest, greatest hope in darkness is that God has not changed. That he is still the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, regardless of whether or not we find ourselves in the land of plenty or in the valley of the shadow of death. We hope in God because he is the one who will cause rivers of living water to rise up from him who believes. We praise him because his worth, his majesty, his goodness, his kindness, his greatness, it has not changed whether it be dark or light. And as humans, we will find ourselves somewhere on the road between the two, knowing that if we're in the light, that darkness could come at any moment and we probably won't see it coming. But God never changes. Friends, this is not active or passive or this is active, I'm sorry, this is not passive. This is not something that we get to sit around and go, well, I guess I'll get around to praising God when I feel like it. Or I guess I'll get around to praising God when things start going the way that I want. Or I guess if I just believed a little bit more, then he'd do this. And then I'd be in a great place 
to worship him. That's not the way this works. There is an exhortation of his own soul to his soul, right? To, from self to self. And I have no idea if self started talking back or not, but at this moment, there is a deep need to remind himself that it is not when he feels like it, but that when he thinks about God in every situation, in every moment, regardless of the situation, that God has not changed and he is worthy of being praised. And he goes on in verse 40, chapter 43, vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. Verse two, for you are God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Do you get the tension that he's living in? Like he believes this to be true about who God is. And yet at the same time, he feels like the darkness and the silence is complete rejection. He finds himself wrestling with these two things, the truth about who God is and how he feels. And he makes no apology for it. Like I could not in my wildest dreams imagine myself being face to face with God and say, this is true of who you are, but mm, this is how I feel. But that's exactly what the psalmist is doing for us. And we're invited into those deep waters with him to say, this is how I feel. But don't be cast down. Soul, would you know and believe that he has not changed, that he is in the heavens, that he is doing all that he pleases regardless of what is happening in my life today, even if it feels like rejection because he is who he says he is. In verses three through five of 43, I've kind of paraphrased it this way for my own sake as I was working through it this week and praying this Psalm even over my own life. He says, oh God, I feel like I've been rejected. Would you send your light and your truth to combat the darkness and these lies? I am lost, Father. Please lead me in your light and in your truth. And then, oh, and only then, will I see you and worship you. Then, Father, my joy will be exceedingly great in your presence. Not in your presence when the darkness is gone, not in your presence when things work out the way that I want to, but just because of the fact that I am in your presence. And the good news for those of us who believe is that we no longer need a temple to worship in as they did we are, in fact, that temple. And he has given us to one another so I could look around and go, ha, temple of God, this is amazing. Let's worship together. I called you the temple of God, Carrie. It's okay, don't let it go to your head. There's just this incredible beauty that happens when we look around and go, man, I know what you're dealing with and you're dealing with and you're dealing with and you're dealing with and you're dealing with. And we find ourselves worshiping together in this kind of way, looking around the room, being so excited about what God is doing, not because everything in all of our lives is perfect, but because that in spite of all of that, in spite of the darkness, in spite of the challenge and in spite of the pain, we have all that we need and more in the person of God because it is his light and his truth that delivers us from darkness. Referring to our salvation in the Christian's journey through the valley of the shadow, I heard someone say recently that they were just incredibly ashamed of these kind of moments. They were ashamed of both the moments where nothing they had done directly caused it, but then in other situations, they were ashamed because even in light of knowing all that they had been saved from, they found themselves unable to keep it all together all of the time. You can just say amen in your soul because that's you at some point in your life, right? Like, don't raise hands. We don't need that kind of moment. But I do believe that we all find ourselves dealing with some place in our own lives where we're 
in some degree or another, just ashamed of the fact that we didn't keep it together the way that we thought we should or the, the way we know he's deserving of. And yet he still says, I am your light and I am your truth. This person said that they were ashamed they couldn't keep it together to be saved by Jesus and then blow it so frequently and often and throw it all the way. And I overheard her friend say to her that it wouldn't really have been that great of a redemption if you could lose it, now would it? Here's an incredible truth that we should never forget. That once you are a son or a daughter, there's no undoing it. There's no erasing that. Like there's no eraser in the Lamb's book of life. Like you don't find it anywhere in scripture. Like it is or is not. You are a son or a daughter or you are not yet, hopefully. There is an abundance of joy that comes with remembering that regardless of your darkness, whether it be self-induced or because of the world we live in, because of the pain that is therein, that we find ourselves being, being loved by, pursued by, cared for by a God who never quits. The, the writer of Hebrew puts, Hebrews puts it this way in Hebrews chapter seven, verse 25. He says, consequently, because he is who he is, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. This idea of uttermost is completely redeemed, saved, known, loved, cared for, called son, called daughter, given the spirit, sealed, now with him as son or daughter permanently for all of eternity. That's what it means to be saved to the uttermost, not just the first time, but every single time that we cry out to him. Jesus says this in John chapter 6, 39, and I wanna paraphrase a few verses. He says that none that the Father gives him will be lost, that all who are called will be drawn and will be saved. That Jesus then says he goes to prepare a room at the end of his ministry, that he goes to prepare a room for you and you and you and you and you, that, they, that one day we may be with him in eternity. He goes to prepare a place for us. It's not a man, I hope they keep this together because I did all this work to get this room ready and we did all this laundry to get all this prepared and ready and right. He doesn't say any of that. He says, I'm going to prepare a room. Don't you forget it. I am going on behalf of you. You are now his son adopted by the spirit, Ephesians 6, 1 and 5, verse 5 and 6. You are sealed by the spirit with him, Ephesians 1, verse 13. And you are now co-heirs of his, with his son of an eternal kingdom that is imperishable, un unperishing, that is undefiled, that is perfect, that is kept for you in heaven. You are not only held by the son, Jesus says in John chapter 10, but you are also held by the father, it's like a spiritual double Nelson of sorts, right? Like you have this moment where you can't escape the grip of the father and the son. One would be enough, but they both hold you in their arms. And he promises in Romans chapter eight that those who are saved are sanctified. And then as we become more like him, we are purified. And one day we will be glorified with him. The promise is this, no matter your circumstances in the darkness, no matter how cast down your soul may be, remember this, you will again see him face to face. And so I don't know where you are this morning in needing just to remember that or maybe where you've been or perhaps where you one day will be likely in the near future. But I can promise you this, that if your hunger, if you're thirsting, if it leads you to things and wells that overpromise and underdeliver, then you will fall. There will be 
loss and pain. But should you hunger and thirst, should that hungering and thirsting lead you to the Father, then darkness never gets the last say. That only him who has saved you, redeemed you, and called you gets the final word on your life. So why are you downcast? Would you remember and believe that he is faithful? Would you put your hope in these truths? And as when, not if, but as God draws the dawn and brings forth the light, would you remember that he is your salvation, that he will bring you home and you will see him face to face? God, you are the one my soul thirsts for. Father, you are the living God. God, you are the one who has brought me into your presence. Father, you are the one I hope and long for. God, you are the one who is near, even when I can't feel you. God, you are my salvation. You are the one who lovingly says no when you deem it best. Father, you are the one who has shown me steadfast love. God, you are my rock. You have not forgotten me. Father, you are the one who vindicates me with your justice. God, you are the one who draws me in as I mourn. Father, you are light and truth. God, you are the one who leads me through the darkness. Father, you are my exceeding joy and you alone are worthy of my praise. So I will hunger and thirst only for you. So I will hope only in you. And I will exhort my soul in the darkness to remember your kindness that at first led me to salvation and continues to go before me. I will praise you because you are worthy of it regardless of my circumstances. Because of your steadfast love, I believe that you will never leave nor forsake me because you are light and truth. I have all that I need in the darkness and I will praise you there. In all of these promises from these two Psalms, we have a sure and steady anchor for the soul as he talks about the waves breaking over him, that there's this deep sense of loss. We have simultaneously a sure and steady anchor, the writer of Hebrews says, for our soul. So would our hope in God, brothers and sisters, would it be that one day we will see him face to face and that in every day in between, regardless of the darkness, we have his spirit and his bride. We have the seal of our promised future with him by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I get to look at all of your faces on a Sunday morning and throughout the week in our homes, knowing that we are all facing the same kind of struggles on a constant basis, but we will see him face to face. And on that day, your hope and your faith will be your eyes and you will worship him and he alone will be your joy, not just a quasi joy, but your exceeding joy. The psalmist says in chapter 43, he will be your exceeding joy forevermore. Amen. Let's pray. Thanks again for listening this week. You can find out more about Grace Auburn Church online at graceauburn.church.